This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional help. If you or someone you know is facing difficulties, I advise you consult a psychologist. Hi everyone and welcome to Psych for Life with Dr. Amanda Ferguson. I'm your host, Dr. Amanda Ferguson. Today's episode is about what to look for in a psychologist and key tips on being a good one. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome psychologists and authors of a new book about psychology practices, Kay Frankham and Dr. Aaron Frost. Kay is a clinical and counselling psychologist in Melbourne. She's supervised and mentored hundreds of psychologists over 30 years. And Aaron is a clinical psychologist in Brisbane. He's also a supervisor who's trained over 500 psychologists in professional and peer supervision. In this podcast, you'll learn how to choose the right psychologist if you're looking for one to help you work through things in your life, what a good therapeutic process is like and how you can identify this, and some key things to know if you're a psychologist in private practice. Welcome Kay and Aaron to the podcast. Thanks Amanda, pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. Well, it's lovely to meet you both and to talk about your new book. What an ambitious project this book must have been. And it's entitled Creating Impact, The Four Pillars of Private Psychology Practice. And of course, you are the uh, two of the authors and the others are? Uh, Daryl Chow, Nathan Castle and Raylene alvarez Wickler. Fantastic. What brought you all together and to create this book? Well, some people, uh, Amanda, took up knitting um, or sourdough uh, bread making in COVID, but not me. I thought, I know, let's write a book. <laughs> um, so I think uh, Aaron would agree probably I was the instigator of the process. I started uh, writing the book on my own and thought, no, this needs a number of perspectives and voices and it became a much bigger project as I started to think about what are the elements for successful private psychology or mental health practice um how do we how do we make hey. our practices work well hey Kay is underselling herself a little bit there Kay, Kay is an inexhaustible font of enthusiasm and energy for improving the quality of psychology Australia-wide and uh, it's it's been really great getting to know Kay over the last sort of ten years or so, but certainly a book like this wouldn't have happened without both Kay's inspiration, but um, also getting getting everyone together and logistically um, making it happen. So yeah, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful to be part of the part of the project. But hats off to Kay for her both both inspiration and um, the logistical organisation in making it happen. Oh, it's a tremendously ambitious project and such a needed uh, book and resource, and especially during this time, Kay. Yes, that's right. And and I guess we couldn't have known that, um, I mean, at the time we were writing it, there was uh, three of us were sort of perpetually in lockdown mm. because we were in Victoria. And then, uh, of course, we had Daryl Chow, who uh, is our international uh, person um, over in uh, West Australia. He's a Singaporean-Australian um academic from Singapore, University of Singapore, but also um, somebody who is a great colleague of ours as well. And 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 I guess we we realized didn't really realise what was going to come out of 
COVID. So we've, of course, had a number of things happening in the last year uh, that are affecting psychology practices, such as the Better Outcomes um, Evaluation. Yes. And also um, the mental health reforms that are coming through from um, Mark Butler, not least of all being the fact that he followed through with the reduction of the 20 sessions that were available over COVID through mental health care plans and now down to 10 again. Mm. And so there's been a lot going on and um, we we weren't writing the book knowing that was going to happen, but I guess in a way book predicts the fact that you know, if you thought this was a cottage industry and you could just um, sort of hang out a shingle and um, do your therapy thing, um, it, it, those days are gone. And it's um, quite um, uh, a demanding profession to be in. Oh, with such an increasingly high burnout rate because the need for us as psychologists has skyrocketed. As you say, the resourcing funding for it has plummeted at the very time when we are in such great demand. It's, it's, it's been an interesting kind of divergence between stated policy aims and actual policy um, delivery. Um, and I think private practice is kind of caught in the crosshairs of a a, a tightening budgetary and fiscal environment, um, but also as as an industry, we haven't yet matured to the position where we're able to really strongly advocate for ourselves in the way that, for instance, the the pathologists did mm. um, during COVID. And we're increasingly, I, I know the doctors don't feel like they're getting a fair shake, but they are um, increasingly powerful in their in their advocacy, and in a way that I don't think we've we've ever really been able to harness. Um, so yeah, it's interesting watching that divergence happening and Kay, Kay is right, um, even pre-COVID and when we first started talking about this book, uh, these were the kind of those big macro trends that Kay, you and I have been talking about for a decade or more. Mm. And so again, your book can only help with the profession's evolving uh, changes and the needs of the public. Yeah, the starting point for both of us and, and all five of us, uh, I suppose, was that we've all had people say, could you just tell me how to dot, 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 dot. And um, it could be how to um, market my practice, how to set up the business structure of my practice, what to do about recruitment, um, what, how would I know if I'm doing any good, uh, what is treatment effectiveness, oh, I don't have time for outcome measurement, tell me how to do that. Wow. Um, what's government up to? Is it really a good idea to go into private practice? And these questions are perennial, really. Mm. They haven't gone away. Um, so that's that's really probably when we started, Aaron, would you say? Yeah. How did you devise the, the four pillars? You've got client, therapist, practice and business. Where did they arise from? It's It's been a really interesting um, something that, and, and this, this is one of the reasons why I've always liked um, working with Kay is that a lot of psychologists and a lot of business people in general often see this as a zero-sum game. It's like you make more money by treating clients badly or you keep the clinicians happy by, you know, um, paying them more money and then the business suffers. And it's really this idea that these things are pulling against each other mm. um, and that somehow you need to cut corners in one of those pillars 
in order to advantage the other. And whether it's doing high quality care or whether it's making profit or whatever the thing is, something that Kay and I have always shared is, I guess, a longer term vision that actually, if you treat clients well, they stick around and they come back, which yeah. makes the clinicians happy because they enjoy um, working in a place that treats clients appropriately, which serves the business well because then you don't have recruitment and retention problems. You become an employer of choice and you hang on to quality clinicians. Word gets around, referrals come in. I think both of us are pretty strong advocates in the idea that you don't need an enormous marketing budget. Um, you shouldn't have to market the fact that you're running a poor practice. Um, the practice should market itself, the quality of the work. Um, so something that we've always kind of agreed on is this idea that if you do the job well, all of the other bits kind of fall in place and it's actually synergistic rather than competitive. Um, and then I think the four pillars kind of evolved as a way of kind of enumerating what are those forces that some people view as competitive, but that we have always viewed as synergistic. Mm -hmm. Okay, did you want to expand at all? Or? Yeah, I think the other part of the four pillars, Amanda, is I think we were trying to think of a model that said, uh, something to people working in solo practices or in small groups, as well as larger groups, uh, group practices, because a lot of the business coaching and I guess a lot of the um, information that's out there is pitched at um, group practices. Yep. And so off, and when we have 50% of our um, psycho registered psychologists are actually uh, in solo practices, um, although that's reducing because of compliance and other expenses that people are starting to realise it's important to be in a position where you can um, actually afford to run your practice and usually that means um, needing to perhaps uh, think about your business model but that's a whole other story but but I think that what we're really trying to say to people is you can do this as a solo yeah you can do this as a small group you can do it as a group of colleagues who are renting rooms together you can do this four pillars model is totally scalable and also it's able to be scaled down to whatever your level is you don't have to be uh, a social media guru you don't have to um, have an MBA it helps but if you don't don't worry I don't have one either neither does Aaron um, so you can you know we've learned a lot of things along the way but yeah. but obviously we also have worked out what do psychologists need to know? Because, of course, somebody who comes, you know, your accountant or, or a financial planner or a business consultant may understand business, but they don't understand our um, sector. And so they would try to bring that to the, uh, to the table so that people can read that and go, these people really get what I'm up, up against or what I'm trying to deal with or what I'm trying to find a pathway through to create a success for this um, practice I've developed that I have a passion for. Yeah. Yes, because a lot of us go into the profession with that passion and not necessarily with the business understanding or ability or even drive. I've had receptionists say to me in the past when I've worked in large uh, suites of offices, Amanda, you're not a charity when I haven't perhaps been as yep. business savvy as I should have been. Yes. And we'd have a lot of people attracted to the profession now as well because of the need and because of the, the wish for meaningful work. Um, and so this book is going to help those new psychologists coming into the field who have, uh, you know, developed their professional abilities and skills, but not necessarily the business ones. Yeah, and 
and I, I guess for for me one of the one of the real hopes is that it serves as a primer so you can get better advice mm. i think one one of the things that I, I think I experienced in my practice, and I know, Kay, you've had this experience too, is that when you open up, you imagine that, oh, okay, I'll just have to spend some money on a lawyer to get that problem solved. I'll just have to get some money on an IT person to get that problem solved or an accountant or whatever. Um, the truth is most professions only do what you tell them to do. And you need to not necessarily know how to do their job, but you need to know the scope of what they can do and what their services offer and what kind of options are available so that you can brief them and actually get good solutions and ask sensible questions. And, and whether that's your IT department or your legal advice or your accountants, you really, you need to have that primary in each of those professions and fields in order to, um, I guess I'll, I'll call it multidisciplinary professional care. Mm-hmm. You have to have some understanding of what those professions actually do offer and how they work so that you can actually work effectively with your, your business team as, as they are. Yes, because running a psychological practice, as you say, covers all of those areas and so many more. Absolutely. I I have absolutely been the IT help desk for my practice. I have also been the insurance broker and the social media person and the because as as a as a um, you know, when when we were a small practice, but even up until quite recently, um, you as the principal have to be across all of those areas. Yeah. Um, and you, you don't know what you don't know until something, um, some expensive lesson comes along and teaches you. Yeah. Um, I guess we, we hope that we've put some of that, those expensive lessons into the, the book um, that people can kind of benefit from and save themselves a little bit of time and money. Oh, it's a great resource for a startup and anyone who needs to just refresh and revise the way that the business is running and the practice is operating. And clients really pick up on that, don't they? Yeah, they do. And I think the thing about the author group is that we are all from different generations of psychology, if you like. So myself, um, elder statesman is the word, Aaron might use. Um, But I'm a boomer, right? Okay, so we'll we'll get that out on the table. Um, But... uh, but of course, in the author group are um, uh, Gen Y. There's millennials. We've got, we've got, you know, we're all at different stages of our careers. We've got people who are early, early-ish career, people who are mid-career, and people like me who are late career. And so that means that hopefully people will look at the book and don't think it's written by somebody who, you know, it's very last century. Um, that they feel that this is really a forward-looking, future-focused approach and you know one of the things about COVID that um, is about probably the only good thing you could say about it is that it delivered destigmatization of mental health care mm. and so really Absolutely. apart from apart from um, certain parts of our population who still don't really believe in mental health services which is seen in the better access evaluation that we are not reaching well enough into uh, the rural areas and regional areas um, but that's a whole other story partly to do with that population and to do with the services that aren't there. But mm. um, but I think that there's this overall view now that mental health is pretty key to the economy. Yes. And to overall well-being and achievement of any um, country in the world. And so we've got that on our side. We have so much going for us. So many opportunities are here. And I think the book is trying to give uh, a good news story rather than saying, well, or us, you know, we've had a, a hard time, which is true. 
but in some ways no one wants to hear it you know what I mean and um, they want to hear what are you going to do about it and how are you going to lift up everybody so that um, this profession being the mental health professions can actually deliver on the promise because government believes in us government has trusted us Government gave us extra sessions, gave us telehealth. They turned around things in Medicare in two weeks. As you might remember, we went from you know, lockdowns and COVID being announced and all of a sudden we had telehealth items and yep. all things that we were waiting. Some people have been waiting tens and twenties of years mm -hmm. for, particularly in the regional remote areas. Um, and all of that says to me, government wants solutions. We've got to find a way to provide them that works for us, works for our clients, and we have to adapt our businesses so that we can learn from what other private practice, healthcare practices have, have learned. And this is, of course, the GPs, because they are ahead of us in this iteration process of working out what is your workforce model? What is your business model? What's your therapeutic model of care? And, and how are you going to um, have staff who want to work in your practice or at least collaborate with you in whatever way you decide is right for you. Yep. Um, because ultimately, probably the solo practitioner will um, become a less and less of a model that is doable. Yes. There will be always be people who will do it and, and who will be successful at it, and I wish them well. Um, but I guess I'd also say uh, for, those, for the rest of us who uh, feel that they need the support of others, um, and don't have that capacity to work solo, then we have to have a way forward. And I guess that's what the book really is trying to um, convey. And I guess there's going to be an inevitable pushback from the public and the GPs that there is an increasing or a real need for more sessions in psychology and for people who can't get in to see a psychologist. And when people can, and as people can see a psychologist, what should they be looking for? What what can we tell the public that they can look for in a, a psychologist or a practice uh, for the right treatment and to choose the right psychologist? I, I guess for me, um, some of the indicators that I'd be looking for are openness to feedback and evaluation of service. Um, I think I, I would rather see a psychologist who knows that they're average than a psychologist who assumes that they're excellent. So I, I would be, if I, if I was giving that advice to my mum, my dad, my brother, my sister, um, my best friend, I'd, I'd certainly be looking for outcome informed as a starting point. And then beyond that, I guess I'd be looking for some kind of issues around clinical governance, risk management, feedback systems, um, and wanting to know that this is a psychologist who's constantly learning. And I think one of the mistakes that we make in psychology is that we view learning as learning new techniques and going off and doing our CPD. Um, I actually mean learning from all clients and learning from all experiences and learning from complaints and learning from um, negative experiences. So, so for me, if I was sitting down and about to see a psychologist, I'd be looking to, I guess, almost interview them and decide, are they someone who I can work with and who's going to listen to me and who's going to learn to apply all of the skills and knowledge that they have to my unique situation. So I guess if I could paraphrase that for a, a mm. client's 
perspective. It's someone who's willing to hear criticism or client mm -hmm. feedback to measure outcomes and to yep. share the fact that they're doing ongoing professional development and training and what kind of resources they're drawing on. Absolutely. That, yeah. This is, again, from the research, you know, uh, we're going with the evidence uh, informed kind of approach that the evidence tells us if we if your um, therapist can collaborate with you in developing goals is transparent with you about what the choices are in terms of the therapy rather than just doing the therapy to you um, but asking you you know well, have you ever heard of CBT this is how it works have you ever heard of ACT this is how it works EMDR whatever whatever the is in your um area of confidence and what you have training in and are interested in using with clients, but basically being able to talk with the client about what they're presenting and being client-centric and saying, here's, here's what's in my, um, you know, my uh, range of um, interventions I can use. What, what's your thinking? Do you, what, what sort of role do you want me to play as a therapist? Um, what sort of values and preferences do you bring to the mm -hmm. therapy? If you've had therapy before, many people say, do not try that CBT crap on me. <laughs> um, or I'm very interested in EMDR, but I'm a bit scared of what it is. Yeah. Or, you know, so people have questions, but they won't necessarily own up to them unless we put ourselves in a position of collaboration and consensus and are actually able to share, you know, our, what we would call formulation, our, how we see what's going on yep. for them assess that and come up with as transparent a, a response to that person turning up in our office um, and being vulnerable and courageous really to walk across the threshold of um, the door of my my clinic room that those people are the courageous people the other people who don't come for help and suffer and their family and friends and work colleagues and all the rest suffer I don't think of them as being courageous. I think people who come to see us um, are the people who are at least willing to take make themselves vulnerable. And we should, in, in turn, be trying to really develop um, very uh, positive relationships with them by also, um, as uh, Aaron's saying, um, try and get them to give us some, uh, as we call it, negative feedback or constructive criticism around what they're needing and what we're not providing. Yeah, yeah. And I guess a lot of people wonder what's the difference between having a chit chat with someone and it being a therapeutic alliance. I mean, how would how would you describe someone knowing they've found the right therapist? There should be a level of discomfort, don't you think, Aaron? I mean, I, I feel that if it's the right therapist, they shouldn't feel like an old um, pair of slippers that you put on at the end of the day, frankly. Um, that's That's the kind of person you want as a friend who no, you know, I, knows I, you inside out and all of that sort of stuff. You want somebody in a different position. Yeah. No, I, I agree completely. I think it's the it's that that tension or that dialectic between someone who you feel safe and trusting and you know um you've got that that capacity to to be vulnerable, but also who pushes you outside of your comfort zone and asks you questions that you don't like um and makes comments that sometimes you don't like and this and this is why rupture repair is a really important part of um therapy because if we're doing therapy well or if we're doing therapy sometimes we're on the edge of of rupture um so yeah i think the the art of therapy is creating the safety in order to use that safety 
um, effectively and in a challenging and um, sometimes uncomfortable way. Mm-hmm. And I guess for those of us who've had therapy as well as being practitioners, it's I guess when you reflect later on and you realise that the therapist has helped you, even though it was uncomfortable at the time or outside your comfort zone or challenging, that there's a later realisation that, wow, this is really constructive. Absolutely. Yeah. Couldn't agree. I, always, I always say, and Aaron knows this story, I, I once got a Christmas card from a, a client who wrote on it, thanks very much for everything you've done for me this year. I hope I never have to see you again. Yes. <laughs> you know, That's it's a bit of a backhander, but um, yeah. what that person went on to tell me in our final session was how helpful it had been, but also they were hopeful that they could now manage their own life. And yes. to me, that is just gold. Yeah. Uh, to feel that you've had that impact on somebody's life, that they didn't become dependent on you yeah. or therapy, which in my view is not really a, um, a healthy thing for most people. I'm not saying people don't need something on in long-term care. Oh, of course. But, um, you know, the, to know when the end point is, has been reached, whether it's an episode of care or a long-term piece of therapy or a short-term piece of therapy, it's really important that people go away thinking, I've got this now. Yes, I often just to create that, as you said, collaborative um, relationship, I will say it's my job to do myself out of a job. Correct. Yeah. And and I think coming coming back to your, your earlier point um, about access, I mean, this is, I think there's, there's two, at a policy level, two major access blocks that we've got. Mm. One is the, the training pathway is simply inadequate. There aren't enough psychologists yeah. coming through. But putting that aside, the bit that we do have control over is the percentage of clients who stick around not getting any benefit. And I think that's that's an important part of being a successful clinician and, and an ethical clinician is sometimes recognising that this therapeutic engagement is not helping this person. Mm. Uh, and rather than I think we have this cognition that we need to hang in there and not give up on this person, whereas actually an alternate cognition, if you'll forgive me from being a little bit uh, cognitive therapy focused Mm. uh, here, an alternate cognition for us is that maybe we're standing in the way of a more effective therapeutic engagement if we just got out of the picture. And how Um, would you advise both the practitioner and the client to navigate that? I think the starting point is to recognise it. I think we all have a remarkable power of denial Mm-hmm. Um, because the the client has a sunk costs fallacy. They they believe that they're doing something that is good for them and is helpful. And the, the truth is that there is a role for long-term therapy, the people who are having 20 sessions, 30 sessions, 40 sessions, 100 sessions. But that's statistically, that's 5 to 10% of the population who are reaching out for, for therapeutic services who, who genuinely need and genuinely benefit from that longer-term therapy. Um, for other people, longer-term therapy is more likely to be associated with longer-term or outcomes or no outcomes. So the starting point is to recognise it. And honestly, I think the only way you can recognise it is with some kind of metric. Mm. Um, and then once you've got that metric, then it's about transparency with it and talking to the client um, throughout therapy about what's working, what's not working, and if things continue to not be working, then once you've run out of your toolkit, then you need to be asking the question of, should we be moving on here? 
I know, Kay, and I apologise for stealing one of your little aphorisms here, but something that you've said to me on many occasions is that actually when we formulate our problem with clients, we should be formulating a treatment plan and discussing what the failure criteria of that treatment plan would look like. And if we're six sessions in and we're getting no progress, then that's probably a good sign that your initial hypothesis as to what was going to work was wrong. Um, and either you need to reformulate or you need to let someone else have a crack at it. I, I was once given this um, phrase, a flight into health. And I find that if patients are going to be successful with me, it's within the first three sessions that you see that flight into Absolutely. health. And and then, of course, they, they have to dip back down into the the real problems um, underneath and we're excavating constantly. But, uh, yeah, that pr progress that I think patients need to realise that if they're not taking that, you're feeling the lift and, and improvement and progress or at least that they've got the tools now and they've got more empowerment in their lives or they're feeling like this, I feel this is going to work, this is going to help me. Um, within the first three sessions, you're probably looking at, am I the right fit for you? Because isn't the fit yeah. the, the key uh, successful measure as well? The research is pretty clear on that. The, the absence of early benefit is associated with long-term no benefit. Mm. Um, and and there's, there's a couple of exceptions to that rule. Like it's, if, if you'll forgive me for telling a story here, I had this experience with um, a clinician who I'm supervising at the moment who she's got some longer term clients that she's sticking with and I, I set her the challenge of so tell me what percentage of them who made no gains early on are then making gains um, and, and for her it's actually a reasonable number but she's been working really hard over the years at iterating at this is not working now I'm going to try that this is not working now I'm going to try that yeah she's the exception that proves the rule in any other time I set that challenge to a supervisee, um, people who are not gaining early do not gain. And there's a cue for people in the public looking for a therapist to gauge if this is a good fit and a good therapist and a good alliance, that the, the changes that are happening within the treatment process to look for the solutions Absolutely. that the therapist is agile. Yeah, so what, I think one of the other things we want, um, our client, you know, clients to look for in their potential therapist is also asking them about what, what I think we're talking about, which is the model of care mm. that uh, they have. So what would happen, you know, if, if, you, if I was a client, I just want to say to the therapist, what would happen if I wasn't getting better within a few sessions? What would, what would be your thoughts on that? Yes. Um, how would you know? And, um, and if I told you that, what would you do with me? Would you chuck me out the door? Or, you know, like I think there are, you know, obviously clients have fears of being rejected, of being left with nothing. They don't tell, they don't want to tell us because we don't appear to be very open to the idea of being told, sorry, this isn't helping. Um, so how else can we know? We have to have a metric, as Aaron says, to, to look at. Um, but also I think um, it's been clear about what are we going to do if, if things aren't going well. Uh, it may not mean referral, but it might. But initially it's going to be talking with the client about what did they understand the model of care was? How many people don't really talk about why do we ask people to practice things between sessions? Mm. What's the purpose of that? And ask, do you think you can actually practice things between sessions? Now, if I'm talking to a woman with four children under 10, 
I'd say probably can be hard yeah. to do some certain things, to practice certain things, but other things, like it might be about practicing awareness or practicing certain things that are precursors to behavior change. Yeah. But for me, it's about having a conversation that acknowledges the context of clients' um, lives, but also makes it clear to them, you know, change, change doesn't happen in the therapy, change happens in time. This is an artificial place where we practice things, we learn things, we explore things. But if it's actually going to work, it has to work in your real life. Mm. So I guess if we're starting to um, pull together some of the things that clients should be looking for, they should be looking for this ability to push back on the therapist to ask about what's how are we going to measure this? What are the results? And if what are the kind of results we're looking for? In what kind of time frame? And if not, then what? And and is it okay if I let you know I don't think this is working, or can we try something else? Or I don't like that intervention process. Yep, absolutely. And how are we going to measure it to your um, <laughs> points of metrics? So. How will they feel? I mean, we've talked a bit about how they might feel, I guess, challenged, but I guess they're going to feel confident. They're going to feel trust that they've found the right person. What else would they feel? I, I think the point that you made um, earlier, um, Amanda, is, is really critical that they should be feeling progress and, and very early. Mm. Um, and maybe that's psychometrically observable progress or maybe it's just a feeling of um, symptom improvement or happiness or wellness or confidence or bravery um, or whatever the, the thing is. They, they should be feeling that and, and feeling it early um, is, is probably a, a good sign. When, and and I, I get this, this question coming up fairly regularly from, you know, friends and family members saying, oh, you know, relationship breakup or drinking too much or whatever the thing is, um, can you recommend a psychologist for me? And I, I always give two or three recommendations. And then the last thing I say is once you've seen them once or twice, give me a call and let me know how they're going. Because even though I think that that person's fantastic, they might not be right for you. And there's no shame or embarrassment or, um, anything negative about them or about you if you're not feeling like it's working. Um, so I, I think that the big thing for me um, when I'm giving advice to friends and family members as clients is to view it as a bit of a try before you buy kind of thing. Spend a couple of sessions and if you're not feeling it, don't invest 10 more sessions in something that you're not feeling is going to be beneficial because if you're not feeling it's going to be beneficial, the research suggests it probably won't be. And that's so important, I think, that we let the public know, and I think it's probably not well known, um, that shopping around is part of the process of finding the right therapist because that therapeutic alliance is the main predictor for successful therapy, as you're saying, Aaron. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's really important. And I think the therapeutic alliance is really something that you have to have a sense of whether that's right with this person in this moment. and. Yep. I mean, I've been a psychologist for 35 years, but, you know, the people uh, that I see, you know, I, I don't always, I'm not always the right person for them. Yeah. Um, so mm. if you if you kind of get into a mindset, and it's certainly something for latter career people, I think, which is uh, I've, I've done all this work, I know this client group, um, I'm a very experienced therapist, like I know I'm good at what I do, but I'm only as good as I can be 
or this person in this session. Yes. And frankly, the pressure you put on yourself to perform is all, all about us. Yeah. Really, what we want to hear is what is this, how's that feeling for you? And yeah. it actually means you relax. You actually relax as a therapist in the sense of being able to hear the client's voice, perhaps through the metrics, but definitely through the feedback and be able to work in this kind of collaborative way, which is far less exhausting, tends to reduce burnout and allows us to go forward in a way that it um, creates longevity in our careers. And that's really also a very key um, issue from my point of view, which is, you know, potentially people have got this idea, uh, you know, they want to leave the profession. Um, that really bothers me and worries me. Um, we have probably maybe between 15 and 20% of psychologists thinking about ways to not see clients anymore. Mm. Um, as a result of COVID, lockdowns, uh, burnout, you know, I think many are feeling pretty uh, disappointed in government yes. um, and the government response to the, yep. to the uh COVID, uh, the aftermath of COVID, so so-called aftermath, I don't know how it's still around. Mm. Um, and so I think there's um, a lot of um, issues for us there that we have um, to face up to, really, and work out how do we actually encourage people to stay in our profession. It's a great profession, but we've done things to ourselves <laughs> um, and also in the way we practice, and to some degree, just through what the world has been through that has made it tough to stick stick it out. And, and I think that's something that uh, we need to attend to. How do, we, how do we support people and help them to change the way they're practising so that, it's, that there is that longevity? Yeah, and as you say, that we connect with each other and whether it's within a, a practice that we all work together with in each other's um, proximity or whether it's, it's peer support and collegial peer supervision and friendships and networking, it's so important that we do connect and discuss these issues and, and recognise that we can't help everyone. And as you say, it is about the client. It's not about us. And we're available to them as as appropriate so that it's not the 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 main pressure on us, but rather the it, it is a relationship. And you can't force that often. So if we say there are three top things that, that people should be looking for with in a practice or a, for a psychologist, what would those three top things be? I, I would start off, I'll start off with the number one, which is how how is the client journey feel from your point of view? In other words, from the moment you made contact with practice or got the referral from the GP or whatever happened, how did how did that practice interact with you? And what, what information did they provide you with? What was the tone of it? Did you feel um, that they were sharing with you what would help you to, in terms of, especially if you're having to wait a period of time to see a, a psychologist? Uh, did you think that the information provided actually enhanced the likelihood that you would get be successful in seeing the, this particular psychologist or psychologist in general? So the, the client journey is really important um, from that point of view. And I guess one of the things I would say uh, from a psychologist's point of view, please stop picking up the phone. Uh, we need to have ways of engaging with our clients that don't require us to always be um, ringing people back, answering phones from referrers and so on, because it's, it's a lot of time that we can spend on those things yes. 
which is, I would say, is very analog and boomer on the lab side then. Um, <laughs> that uh, we need to move past that and find ways to interact with clients that, um, in, I guess, engage with them, but don't take us away from our practice. So that instead of seeing five clients, we're seeing four because we have to put aside an hour for phone calls and blah, blah, blah. This is the sort of thing that we see that if, if there's, if you see clients for a couple of days, most people are putting aside a whole day for admin. Now, my question to those who are doing that is, is there some ways in which you can actually automatise systems so that there is less of that happening for you? Mm-hmm. And how do you do it in a way that still feels safe, that you're screening clients if, if you feel you should do that and so on? So that would be my kind yep. of number one is how the, how's the client journey from both sides? Yeah, and, I, and I'd, I'd agree with that and may, maybe... To, to expand on on your point, hey, um, it's interesting this is front of mind at the moment, so I don't know if I'd necessarily a- agree with myself um, a few hours' time, but I just had a supervision session with one of our young registrars, and she's, she's an excellent clinician, and her client skills are fantastic. Her client management skills, no one's ever taught her. No one's taught her how many new clients she can take a week, how often, when to move from weekly to fortnightly, um, when to bring someone forward who's sitting on the wait list, how many people can you have on a wait list, how do you calculate how long it's going to take to um, manage your wait list. And I think that, that to me, the analogue part of that is figuring it out yep. and figuring out how your case management um, actually works and then a step beyond that is to then look at automating it so one of the things that that we do we actually have math we we know how many people each person can take each fortnight because we know what their historical run rate is um, on that so um, we can automatically allocate the right number of clients we can automatically monitor people's wait lists because we've taken the analog learning and then tried to turn it into an automated system. So I think absolutely what you're saying there, Kay. Um, But then the next part is that you want to try and automate as much of this stuff as possible so that you're not spending an entire day being a case manager. You're actually spending a month every few years setting up systems so that then you don't have to spend that time every week. So if we translate that for the the patient or the member of the public mm. on a wait list, what should they be um, aware of? How long should they be waiting for? I think this is a really interesting question um, because I think the the point is wait lists are changing. Like the the wait list crisis that that's that's so twenty twenty one. Everyone wants to keep talking about it, but the the fact is there's not a wait list crisis out there at the moment there is a waitlist crisis for around 15 to 20% of the clinicians out right. there. And if you absolutely want to see Joe Bloggs because you've been told that Dr. Joe Bloggs is the best therapist in Australia, then, yeah, you, you might have a significant waitlist to see Dr. Joe Bloggs. If you're willing to actually assess for yourself based on the kind of things that you're talking about, Amanda, um, who might be a quality clinician. There's actually really great clinicians out there who are getting good outcomes that you can see next week. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, the wait list, list crisis took on kind of a, a life of its own and it was absolutely real. Like we, we had a nine-month wait list in 2021 and I know that other people were in the same boat. You can see one of our psychs within two to three weeks. You can see one of the senior psychs within four to five weeks. Most 
reasonable practices who've put the time and effort into managing their systems are in the same place now. Dr. Joe Bloggs might still be booked out forever, but the rest of us are back more towards business as usual. Fantastic. And anything else uh, that we need to be discussing today? I think um, the final point about client, the client perspective on attending uh, a psychology practice is um, if you are being told there are these extensive wait lists, do go back to your referrer, to the GP, and talk to them about whether you should wait. Because people don't know. They think, oh, it's like going, I mean, in some ways we are in the same position as a specialist. I get that. Um, you, you're a specialist cardiologist, but you know what? There are a lot of good cardiologists in this world. And your GP says, I want you to see cardiologist A. And cardiologist A happens to have a very long wait list, but his colleague who was younger and earlier career has a shorter wait list. How would you know whether it was a good idea to go and see the younger one? You'd probably talk to the GP. Yes. Um, and you might go in and see the cardiologist. And before that person does open heart surgery on you, you might want to go and see your senior, <laughs> the senior colleague. But either way, you start with somebody because it's not a good idea to wait around to see if you're going to have a heart attack. Yes. And so yeah. I think, and I'm not saying mental health is the same necessarily, but I think we also tend to say that mental health is special a bit too often. And one of the things I'd say, mental health is a health issue. Yeah. So if you can get early help, great. And if you can fossick out somebody that you can see in three weeks or so, that's a reasonable waiting time in the these days. Absolutely. But if somebody's saying to you, um, I've got a six-month waiting list, a 12-month waiting list, I guess I'd say either they've got a very specialist practice and you may have a very, very specialist issue that you want to see them about. But if, you, if you've got something that you consider probably a lot of people would suffer from, then you want to see somebody as quick as possible and get on with it. And if that person isn't right, make an early decision. Give them the feedback and get on with finding the right person for you if they're not willing to refer you. Um, it, it is, I guess this is what health literacy is about. And, and we really want people to have mental health literacy and think of that um, choice, those choices and not just sit and feel they have to put up with whatever they're being given. Absolutely. Great point, Kay, that early intervention in any health situation is key. Couldn't have said it better, Kay. I'm not going to add anything over and above that. So if people want to find you guys, uh, your websites are? Oh, I was just going to say, first of all, if people are interested in the book, it has its own website because it's a very special book, okay? So it gets its own website. <laughs> Uh, but it, the website is really just for purchasing the book and you can purchase a, obviously a hard copy. Um, you can also uh, purchase the ebook. Um, and its website is creatingimpact.com.au. My website is kfrankham.com um, and you can go on there and have a look at some of the other products that I have and also my business coaching services. Yep. You can find me at um, benchmarkpsychology.com.au and you can have a look at some of our outcome data, which is just sitting there and publicly browsable. Wonderful. Thank you, Kay and Aaron. And thank you so much for your book. What an amazing gift to the world and certainly to our region, that is. Yeah. Well, thanks. Very kind words. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please rate, review and subscribe on Apple, Spotify or wherever you're listening right now. Plus, don't forget you can access all of the resources mentioned in today's podcast via the show notes. Is there a pressing issue or topic you'd like me to discuss? 
Head to my Instagram at drAmandaFerguson and send me a DM. I love hearing from my listeners. If anything discussed in this podcast has caused you concern or distress, contact your general practitioner or health provider. To locate a psychologist in your area, call the Australian Psychological Society and locate Find a Psychologist Service on 1800 397 or visit www.findapsychologist.org.au. If you or someone you know is in crisis, Lifeline is available 24-7 on 13 11 14 and Kids Helpline, again 24-7 on 1800 1800 and both are free of charge. To find out more about me, please visit my website, dramandaferguson.com.au. You can find the link in my show notes. The opinions expressed by guests in these podcasts aren't necessarily shared by me. 